Would you turn in the Bibles that you brought or that are close to you in your chairs to Nehemiah chapter 4, where tonight we consider the first nine verses only of this um, chapter. We consider it together as a, as a church, as a body, as a flock. If you're new, if you're visiting, we're so glad you came. We're currently going through this book. When we're done with Nehemiah, looking at principles of building, building together, building God's kingdom, being a part of God's work on the earth. When we're done with that book, Nehemiah, we'll be looking at the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, in one night. We're going to cover the whole Bible in one night. A marathon, never been done before. No, we're going to cover uh, the Bible in about a year, and I say about in quotations. We'll just kind of see. We'll probably do Genesis, the first 11 or 12 chapters, the first night, and then um, in two or three weeks we'll have covered the book of Genesis. And it, What we want to do is take you through the Bible at 30,000 feet. Rather than driving, we're going to be flying over it. A jet tour of the book rather than a walking tour or even a car tour. We're going to give you uh, the overview of it so that you see how all the books fit together, what their main themes, points, um, thoughts are, uh, its relevance to the rest of the Bible, and especially to our lives today. So we want to look at that uh, when we're done with this book. I bet that you've had an experience similar to this. You make some kind of commitment to the Lord, a spiritual rededication, renewal, decision, only to find your decision challenged. And that it's not as smooth as you expected. In fact, some of you have made a commitment, a decision, only to have everything fall apart. And then you step back and you wonder, well, Lord, why did you let that happen? Why did I do that? Why did you do that after what I just did? In this chapter, Nehemiah could be tempted to think those thoughts. He had left a very posh setting, a very great career in a place where he served an important role. And he journeyed some 800 miles to the west, doing what he felt God called him to do, only to be attacked, maligned, ridiculed, because he had in his heart to do something great for the Lord. There's a book out called The Anatomy of Leadership, put out by Eugene Jennings. He wrote something. Great changes in the history of an organization or in the course of a nation are generally the result from the innovative efforts of a few superior individuals. Nehemiah would, by his commitment to God, change the course of the history of Israel. Because he heard, he prayed, and he went to a place he had never been, Jerusalem, to fulfill God's will. He was an outsider, but he was a man with great vision. He saw the need. The walls are broken down of the city that is the center of God's work on the earth, Jerusalem. The gates are burned with fire. The people are discouraged. By God's grace, I'm going to go. He's excited. And you can imagine, after last week's chapter, 
how excited he got as he would ride his horse or donkey around the walls of Jerusalem and see goldsmiths and priests and uh, men and women, people from all walks of life, lifting stones, putting in mortar. The walls are being built. Wow. Exciting. Joyful. In chapter 4, his joy, his excitement are all challenged. One of the greatest scientists of our time, Isaac Newton, came up with the laws of motion. Newton's third law of motion is one we're all familiar with. You'll know it when I say it. You'll be able to finish it. Every action, he said, brings an equal and opposite reaction. That's Newton's law of motion. It's also, in essence, a spiritual law. When you make a motion toward God... Let's put it this way. When God becomes your friend, expect an equal and opposite reaction in hell. When you make God as your friend, you're going to have the devil as your enemy. He's always been your enemy, but now you're going to tick him off. He's not going to be so excited about your commitment to God, your decision to build the kingdom of God, your decision to get involved in the church and really make God number one to give of your time, your talent and your treasure. He's going to come against you. Whenever we attempt to do anything for God, get used to it. You'll be attacked by the enemy. Jesus said in John 15, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now listen, that ought to make you happy. You say, what? That ought to make me happy? It ought to make you really happy. Because if you're going to have any relationship with the devil at all, and you will, you want him as your enemy, not as your friend. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, there's something comforting in the thought that the devil is an adversary. I'd much sooner have him for my adversary than for my friend. See, before you came to Christ, you were on his side. You didn't know it, but you were. When you gave your life to Christ, you defected. You said adios to his kingdom. You jumped ship. You entered into the kingdom of God. And he's been very busy and active to discourage you ever since. Because you're building. You're growing. Something's happening. So the issue tonight is, what do you do about it? Answer, become a smart fighter. Become a good fighter. Now, most Christians don't like to think of themselves as fighters. They go, no, 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 I'm a Christian. I'm a peacemaker. You know, it's all love, joy, contentment, peace. Yes, it is. But because of the nature of this relationship, God is your friend, Satan as your enemy. And by the way, he's your enemy because he's God's enemy. Anything that God loves, he's against. Any plan that God institutes, he will come against. So it's not that it's, it's all about you and you're some special, wonderful, spiritual force, nor am I. We shouldn't flatter ourselves. It's all because of our, our relationship to him and because God so dearly loves us that Satan will so vehemently attack us. So we become believers and we enter into a battleground. We need to learn to fight right. Paul the Apostle, at the end of his life, wrote to young Timothy and he said these words, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. 
Again, he writes to Timothy and he said, endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And he said again to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. So sorry about that. You can't be a pacifist in this war. There's no such thing as a spiritual pacifist. If you refuse to fight, you will fall. Now, what we're going to do tonight is look at the principles found in the first nine verses of Nehemiah chapter 4. Because uh, Nehemiah and his band of men and women uh, were attacked externally as well as internally. Tonight, we're just going to look at the external attacks of the enemies that were around them. Next week, we'll look at the despondency that is in the camp. But tonight, we're going to look at opposition by mockery and then also opposition by a connivery that happens with the enemies. Verse 1, chapter 4. But it so happened. And anytime you have a chapter that ends with but, after it has been a chapter filled with victory, you know something's up. This person built the wall. Next to him, that person. Next to him, those folks. But, so you automatically go, "Uh uh-oh, that's not a good transitional word after a victory. You're right. But it so happened when Sanballat, heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews and spoke before his brethren, the army of Samaria, and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now, Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. We've read about these characters before. Do you remember back in chapter 2, around verse 19? They're introduced to us. Sanballat the Horonite will discover he's the governor of the northern province of Samaria, And there's two other fellas. One is mentioned here. Sanballat, as the governor of Samaria, when he first heard in chapter 2 that the Jews had come back to rebuild the walls, he laughed. He ridiculed them. Now, from chapter 2, his laughter has gotten a little bit stepped up. Now he's angry and he's mocking. Because he controlled, as the governor of Samaria, he controlled the tax base. He got revenue. If the Jews were building Jerusalem, some of the power that he once maintained over that land would slip from his hands. He would lose power. He would lose territory because now Judah is back. Their numbers are growing. They're going to get more territory. So he is going to lose a tax base. He'll lose revenue. So he's angry. He laughed, chapter 2. He's angry, chapter 4. Now, in a few verses, you'll read they're very angry. It's even stepped up a little bit more after this. And then you'll also notice Tobiah the Ammonite. We mentioned him also in chapter 2. A long-time enemy of the Jewish nation. Way back from the days when Moses led the children of Israel through the desert. They wanted to cross over into the land of Israel. And the Ammonites wouldn't give them passage. 
Later on, they hired a false prophet by the name of Balaam to trick the children of Israel so that God would curse them. And so God places a curse on the Ammonites up to the 10th generation. They shouldn't enter the house of the Lord. These are the enemies that are there in the land that are ridiculing the Jews trying to rebuild the temple. The enemies are identified, and for any battle, you got to know who you're fighting. Part of military intelligence is, who is the group that fostered this attack? What are they like? What is their description? How do they operate? operate? Because you can't fight somebody unless you know who your enemy is. And you have an enemy. He hates you. Now, you've heard the four spiritual laws track, and you've been witness to maybe in the past something like, you know God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's true. He does. The opposite is also true. Satan hates you and has a miserable plan for your life. And if he could get his way, he'd make your life miserable and stagnant and have you fall at every temptation. So that's who our enemy is. And he's real. The Gallup organization polled Americans, and they said this, 70% of Americans believe in the devil. Well, I would say 70% of America is right. 30% are wrong to their own detriment. They don't know their own enemy. But of that 70% that believe in a devil, only half believe he's real, a literal devil. Others think he's just a symbol of evil. Some uh, nondescript force. Dwight L. Moody used to say, I believe in the devil for two reasons. Number one, because the Bible says he's real. Number two, because I've done business with him. (laughs) And any Christian would say, I know the devil's real. Yeah, he does business with me every day. He hassles you. He attacks us. He's against us. But more than what other men say, the Lord Jesus tells us he's real. He said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. The Lord Jesus tells us Satan is a personal being who is malevolent. Jesus said to Peter one day, Peter, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. How would you like to hear those words? Put your arm around you. Hey, just want you to know the devil's been asking about you lately. Well, would you tell him, Jesus? (laughs) He's real and he's personal. Sometimes Satan, our enemy, is very out in the open and overt about the way he attacks us. At other times, he's not so obvious and even uses the most unlikely characters. One day, Jesus said to Peter, who suggested, Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem, whatever you do. Jesus turned to him and said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. You're not thinking like God thinks, but you're thinking like man thinks. You're not after spiritual matters, but only fleshly. Said it to Peter. It's as if Satan was inspiring those thoughts. Yes, Satan can work even through well-intentioned dragons, as one author put it. On another occasion... In Philippi, Paul the Apostle was there. You remember the story. We've been studying it on Sunday morning in the book of Philippians. Paul preached the gospel down by a river. Lydia opened up her heart to receive the things that Paul spoke to her. 
And then Paul and his group was sharing the gospel in the city of Philippi, and there was a, a young girl who followed them. And after they were done preaching, she would address the crowd and say, These men are servants of the Most High God who teach us the way of salvation. And I guess Paul must have just looked at her like, Who are you? Where'd you come from? Because she kept doing that wherever they went. And the Bible tells us it annoyed Paul so much that, listen to this, he cast the demon out of her. Here's a woman saying the right message you'd think is a servant of God by her message, but she was demon-possessed. So Satan will sometimes work in clandestine ways that we wouldn't suspect it would be the devil, but it was. We have to realize who our enemy is. These enemies, especially Sanballat, um, utters these loud, sarcastic remarks. Look at those again. What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices, which was the heart of their worship in the temple? Will they complete it in a day? No, it'll be 52 days, but... Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish stones that are burned? You know that the name devil, you know what it literally means? Slanderer. It fits him, doesn't it? Revelation chapter 12, he's called the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before God day and night. It's sort of ominous to think that I've got somebody before the throne of God telling God on me. Look at Skip. God, look at his attitude, look at his actions, look at his thoughts. He accuses me before God. And you know what? I got to say, he's probably right. I don't think he makes stuff up because God's smarter than that. But he brings all of my sins and shortcomings before God. And I got to tell you, he's got probably a real long list. That's why I'm glad that I've got Jesus as my lawyer who can say as he approaches the bench, Dad, the prosecution is right, but I paid for the sins of Skip Heitzig, and they're all washed away. Case closed, God would say. Case dismissed. But nonetheless, he's the accuser of the brethren, accuses us before God day and night. When you decide at whatever point in your life you're going to get serious with God, and he becomes your not just Savior, but your Lord. You're going to follow Him. His will will become paramount in every decision you make. You're going to place His kingdom first before everything else. If you ever get to that point, and I assume so many of you are already there, I trust. Whenever you do, you can expect all of the forces of this world under the control of Satan, including the political system, including the economic system, including the educational system, to be aligned against you. And you'll hear things like, oh, these stupid Christians, they're so lame, they're so feeble. They gather together in their prayer meetings, in their little church Bible studies, and they're so lame. That's the attitude of the world. 23 years ago, when I left Southern California and moved to New Mexico, people looked at me like, you're really an idiot. Oh, you're going to go out and start a church in your little Toyota pickup truck or your Datsun pickup truck. Go across there, you're leaking oil every hundred miles, and you're going to really do something great for God. And then when I got there, it wasn't any better. Even churches 
uh, were saying, well, you know, this isn't going to work. This is a military area or this is a Catholic area. or This is a Southern Baptist area. They had all sorts of excuses why whatever we had planned to do for God wasn't going to work. And I remember a couple clergymen. One put his arm around me and said, you know, I appreciate the zeal of youth. This town is a little bit different than California, however. We're down in the southwestern part of the United States here, and uh, people think a little bit differently. And he said, I want to help you. And he was from a Presbyterian church, a wonderful guy, by the way. But he preached in robes every Sunday. And they were quite beautiful robes. So he said, Skip, I'd like to buy you a robe <laughs> so that you can preach in one. And I didn't know how to answer him. First of all, I thought, could you see me in a robe? I don't even have socks on. That'd be kind of cool. Robe, no socks. I just said, Larry, God bless you for that. But, you know, I'm just not a robe guy. And he sort of looked at me with pity saying, well, God bless you. It'll never work. Another pastor in town was concerned and he sat me down a week before we started our first Sunday morning. And he said, let me ask you a question. Tell me about the pledge cards that you're going to have people fill out. And I said, what, what are those? He goes, well, they're little cards. You have them in, in pews and you're asking people to pledge right off the bat how much money they're going to give for the next year so you can set your budget. I said, Boy, I don't even know how that works, so I don't think we're going to be doing pledge cards. And he said, oh, your, your church will never get off the ground, never work. You've got to have pledge cards. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. Okay. And he said, tell me about the offerings you're going to take. And I said, well, we have a coffee can back in the foyer that we've been using of the theater that we meet in um, on Sunday morning. And uh, we just thought we'd get a few more coffee cans and, uh, and, and put them out there. So we're not going to take a formal offering. We're just going to tell people there's a coffee can. And he went like this. You're kidding. It'll never work. And you know something? To this day, from that day to this day, we have never once taken a formal offering in that fellowship. We just put boxes around as it grew, just different places. By the way, we're working on those right now to put here. Just think, look, it's the Lord's church. If he wants to build it and add to it, great. And just see by faith what he'll do. But some of them were well-meaning and others came along and just said, it will never work. You should try it somewhere else. Good riddance. Well, let's look at how Nehemiah responded. Look at verse 4. There's no introduction, but it's a prayer. It doesn't say who prayed it, but we would just infer by the way it's written that Nehemiah, the leader, prayed this. Hear, O our God. For we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity. Do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. It's a pretty heavy-duty prayer. However, a lot of times our response isn't first to pray. Our response is first to retaliate. We get angry. We want to get in the flesh. Nehemiah immediately stops and he prays. And did you notice how it was worded? Look at it again. Hear, O Lord, our God. Notice the end of it. For they have provoked 
you to anger. He didn't say, they really bother me. They've provoked me to anger. You know why Nehemiah wasn't provoked to anger? Because he knew that they had provoked God to anger. So he didn't have to worry about it. You've really torqued God, you guys. He's not happy with this. And there's a principle there. Whenever you or anybody else, whenever the world goes against God's people, he takes it personally. He doesn't take it lightly when God's people are attacked. He'll step in at some point, some way, and get involved. Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus. He wanted to find some Christians and put them in prison or kill them. He was arrogant and very determined. But on the way, Jesus stopped him, didn't he? Knocked him off his horse, put him flat on his back, shined a bright light on him. And Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I love that. It's like your big brother stepping in when you were hassled as a kid and saying, you know what? You're going to deal with me now, buddy boy. He said, who are you, Lord? That's what he said. Who are you, Lord? You see, he was out to get them. Jesus said, oh, no, you're getting me. You're raising my ire. Jesus takes it personally whenever his own people are attacked. So Nehemiah did not retaliate. Nehemiah did not seek revenge. Now, he prays a pretty vengeful prayer, but here's the point. He followed the principle, instead of me taking personal revenge, I'll let God take the revenge. By the way, God will do a better job than you will. I've discovered that as I read the Bible, I could take revenge or I could let God do it. God's great at it. You see, the Bible says this in Romans 12, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Side note, as you're praying because you've been attacked or ridiculed or mocked by people, as you're praying, evaluate the criticism. See, we as God's people, a lot of times we say, I've been criticized, it's got to be the devil. Well, now maybe it is, or maybe they're right. So it helps to evaluate, what is the source of this? Who's saying that? How many are saying that? Could it be that elements of what they're saying is true? I need to evaluate this in the sight of God and truly pray about it to find out if there's an element of truth to it. Something else I like about this little paragraph we're reading. Nehemiah is being attacked by his enemies. He's identified them. He stops and he prays to God. There's not a word here that he turns to his enemies and talks to them. He didn't talk at all to his enemies. Rather, he talks to God about his enemies. May I say that that's a good strategy in dealing with your enemy, the devil? Don't stop and talk to the devil. And for the life of me... I have never understood why in some Christian circles, talking to the devil is practiced. I've heard whole congregations stop and the preacher will start like praying to Satan. Now, devil, we just want you to know that we bind you and we come against you. And by the way, devil, what time is it? And it's like, what are you doing talking to the devil? <laughs> Doesn't the Bible say resist the devil and he will flee from you? Not carry on long conversations with the devil and he will flee from you. Don't talk to the devil. Talk to God about the devil. 
And I think that's a scriptural principle. When Michael the archangel, it's found in the book of Jude, was contending with Satan over the body of Moses, he himself did not bring a railing accusation, but said rather, the Lord rebuke Satan. So I never stop and pause and talk to the devil. I rebuke you like, ooh, he's going to go, ooh, skips after me, ooh. Uh Uh-oh. I don't bind anything. He does. And by the way, if you're going to bind the devil, do me a favor. Do it for good, would you? Because he seems to get out every time people bind him and he's back the next day. So make it a permanent deal. Verse 4. After they pray, they persist. I love this. Oh, verse 5. Uh, No, we covered verse 4 and verse 5. We're in verse 6. See, I'm glad verses are numbered. So we built the wall. And the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Don't you love that? They prayed and they went back to work. They prayed and they kept at it. They talked to God about their enemy Then they sort of forgot about their enemy. The people had a mind to work, and they built the wall up to half its height. One person said, living well is the best revenge. Live above the enemy. Live above the accusation. Live above the mockery. If somebody's mocking you or attacking you, live above that. Let them stew and wallow. Just live well. Live for God. Have joy. It'll drive them nuts. There was a judge who was running for re-election in his town. The opposition made slanderous remarks about him. They weren't true. His campaign manager said, Judge, you need to answer these accusations. What are you going to tell the public? The judge smiled. He was from the South. He said, You know, when I was a boy, we had an old dog out on the farm. Every time there was a full moon, that dog just kept barking and barking at the moon. But you know what? The moon just kept a shining. So you ask me what I'm going to do? Let the dog bark. I'm just going to keep on shining. (laughs) And these folks building the wall pray to God, but they persist in their work and they keep at it. Verse 7. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites... Geographically, it means people, the enemies on all four sides surrounding Jerusalem. Heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed. They're seeing the success that they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and to create confusion. First instance, we saw opposition by mockery. This is now opposition by conspiracy. You know, don't think that you can just uh, pray and persist and Satan will uh, pick up his tools and leave you alone. You might be successful in fending off the attack by resisting the devil, as the Bible says, and he will flee from you. But he'll wait for a time to come back. How do I know this? Because Jesus was tempted on one occasion. And on the Mount of Temptation, he 
rebuked Satan. You know the story. It says Satan left him, but Luke's gospel puts it this way. Luke chapter 4. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed until there was an opportune time. Satan is sort of like Governor Schwarzenegger, who in his movie said, I'll be back. (laughs) Satan will leave, but he'll be back. And he'll step it up the next time. And here the enemy sees the breaches in the wall are being closed. And so plan B, you can't beat him, join them. That's sort of the idea, by the way, where it says, notice in verse 8, let's come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. The idea is, let's get in among them, and by our presence and terrorist activities, we'll bring confusion in the city. I think I owe you an explanation or another interpretation of this passage. One commentator, Cyril Barber is his name, believes that this ought to be translated, that they conspired to come in and create confusion in me, that is, in the the leader, Nehemiah. That their conspiracy was to come in and ruin the reputation, uh, undermine the leadership, you might say, of Nehemiah himself. In any organization, in any office organization, in any corporate organization, in any spiritual organization... Shrewd men or women will take advantage of those who are disgruntled. They'll find somebody who's a little bit upset at something, and they'll notice that somebody's upset, and they'll go to them after, maybe after a church service. Hey, brother, can I talk to you? Hey, can can you pray about something? Oh, yeah, what do you want me to pray about? You remember the story of Absalom, the son of David, who stationed himself outside of the gates of Jerusalem. And as people were going up to the gates, they knew that they had a grievance. They knew it would be hard to get to the king. And so Absalom stationed himself there and he would say, hey, how's it going? Oh, I got a real trial I'm going through. It's a drag. I got to bring it to the king. Oh, Absalom said, I I really wish that my father were available to you like he ought to be. You know, he's never available when you need him. Tell me your grievance. Maybe I can help you. It says that Absalom stole the hearts of the people and through that created a rebellion. This is the fear of every leader. When I first came here just about a year ago and set foot on campus for the first church service. This is before I actually came here to preach the first Sunday. It was a Sunday, but I hadn't been in the pulpit. I just set foot on campus. I was approached by a a guy who, I mean, he really approached me. He walked right up. He was like this far away from my face. And he was as tall as I am, a little bit beefier. He looked at me and said, I got to talk to you. And I said, happy to meet you. My name's Skip. Oh, yeah, yeah. He told me his name. And he went on uh, very directly. Don't you dare come here and change things or change Wednesday nights, he said, into a Bible study. (laughs) Not, hi, I'm so-and-so. God bless you. We're glad you're here. What is your vision? Gee, you probably had 23 years of experience. You might know something. How can we help that vision? It wasn't that at all. It was like, boom. Right away. 
Then imagine how disheartening it was when some people were calling other people like these folks saying, hey, let's get together. We got to talk. And this kind of stuff was going on. Well, Nehemiah had that. He's trying to build a wall and he's got Sanballat, uh, the uh, Horonite, and Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab. And he's got the Ashdodites on the west, the Ammonites on the east, the Samaritans in the north, the Arabians in the south. And he just wants to do God's will. So he prays. He persists. They come at him again to create confusion, to dismantle his leadership. And uh, look what he does. Verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. And because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. The response to the second attack is very similar to the response of the first attack, but it's tweaked a little bit. The first time they prayed and persisted. Now they're praying and protecting They'll pray, they talk to God, but now they're going to set a watch and make sure that the enemies don't come in at night. So it says, look at verse 9, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God. You ought to circle the word we, and I'll tell you why. The first time there's a prayer uttered in verse 4, it's Nehemiah's prayer. He's praying alone. Nobody's praying with him. He writes it down. It's preserved for us. This is Nehemiah's prayer. Here, without any prodding at all, we prayed we got together. It's, it's in the plural sense. The people had a mind to work, but the people had a heart to pray. I got to tell you something. In the Christian life and in Christian work, once you have a heart to pray, you'll have a mind to work. You want the work fueled? Get people together who will pray. Because prayer will open up the possibilities to what God can do. It lets you see beyond the natural, beyond the stones that are burned and the problems and the problem people. You lift it up to God and you go, oh, I I can see clearly now, to quote the song. (laughs) One day when the prophet Elisha was in the city of Samaria and he knew the Syrians were after him, he he booked it. He hightailed it over to the city of Dothan. He and his buddy, his servant, Gehazi. While they were in Dothan, early in the morning, the servant of Elisha got up and he looked around the city and he saw... The Syrian army encamped all around him, and he got nervous. And he told his master, oh, I feel so sorry for us. We're, we're surrounded. We're dead meat. Now, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. I didn't say dead meat in the King James. Maybe deadeth meat, but not. Anyway, um, Elijah the prophet, rather than becoming alarmed, prayed. And he said, oh, Lord, open up his eyes that he can see. And the Bible says that the Lord opened up the eyes of the servant of Elisha and he saw chariots of fire and an army of angels all around. Because Elisha had said, those who are with us are greater in number than those who are against us. So when the servant of Elisha, who saw the Syrians around him and thought, poor us, now he sees greater armies around the Assyrians and he thought, poor Syrians. (laughs) Their dead meat. And it all came from that perspective that was brought on by prayer. It enables us to see the possibilities of God in the spiritual sense. So Nehemiah must have been blessed. These guys got together and they're praying. We prayed together. I mentioned before, I'll just mention again, 
uh, how blessed I was to find out that a group of men decided when I was out of the country in Israel and then in London, we're going to get together every week and we're going to pray for Skip. And they just decided on their own. I, I didn't say, hey, while I'm gone, you ought to get together and tell somebody this idea. It's just a blessing to know that people would get up early one day a week and specifically pray and lift me up before the throne. Wow. I'm sure that's how Nehemiah felt. Well, uh, let's finish it off. Not only did they pray, but it says they set a watch. And because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. The people had a mind to work. The people had a heart to pray. The people had an eye to watch. Now, you might look at this and you might figure... What is it? Nehemiah doesn't have faith. I mean, he he displayed such a great dependence on God by praying. Lord, we trust you. Lord, take care of our enemies. And now he stations people to guard it. They're going to guard it with spears and with swords. So what is this? A lack of faith? He says he trusts God one minute in prayer and then he sets a watch. No. He's practical, that's all. Nehemiah is, isn't so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. He knew how to worship. He knew how to work. He knew how to watch. Jesus said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. This is sort of the equivalent of what Oliver Cromwell t- told the troops, the British troops. He said, trust in God and keep your powder dry, boys. And look down at verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. And fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Now let's translate that into our culture. I'm going to tell you, trust God, but lock your doors. It'd be sort of foolish in our culture to leave your house unlocked, windows open, and then to stand outside and just pray that God will protect it. Okay, pray that God will protect it, but lock your doors. Or you're, you're unemployed. Pray for a job. God is great. He's awesome. He's strong. But then hit the road. Fill out some resumes. Knock on some doors. Make some phone calls. It's that combination, that cooperation of trust And active trust, that I think is the key. Well, we're going to close with that and we'll cover more next time we're together. Um, I just want to throw this in. Because I remember one time teaching a little bit on spiritual warfare. And a person coming up to me and said, "Uh, Skip, uh, that was a nice message everything, but it really had nothing at all to do with me. Because I'm never really hassled by Satan. And I said, oh boy, we got to talk. What do you mean? He goes, that's not a good sign. It's not? No, it's a bad sign. He said, what do you mean it's a bad sign? I went to tell him this story. There was two guys, they were out duck hunting. And one was a Christian and the other guy claimed to be a Christian. But the guy who claimed to be a Christian said to his friend, you know, you talk about spiritual warfare and I've never had the devil attack me. His friend uh, when they were shooting the ducks, you know, some died and some 
weren't dead yet. And the dogs would always go after the birds who weren't quite dead because they were trained so they wouldn't get away. They'd grab the ducks and bring them back. He said, the reason that the devil isn't attacking you is because you're like the dead ducks. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Satan is only after live ducks. So if you're not getting any attack from the devil at all, it could be because tonight you're not a child of God yet. Now, I know it's going to sound weird to invite people to come to Christ to enter into this spiritual warfare. It sounds kind of weird, does it? You mean you're going to invite me to Christ just so that tomorrow I can get hassled the rest of my life by the devil? (laughs) I don't think so. Oh, no, no, no. Understand, you've already been attacked by the devil. And if you haven't given your life to Christ, he's won. Because he'd love to secure your soul away from God's heaven forever. And if you don't come to Jesus Christ, he's won. And like Spurgeon said, I'd much rather have the devil as my enemy than as my friend. And if you haven't given your life to Christ through a born-again relationship, then you're on his side. You're on Satan's side. It's exactly what he wants to keep you away from eternal life. So I'm saying defect. Change kingdoms. Hop the fence. Come over to the light side. True life, eternal life. Let's bow our hearts, let's bow our heads, let's pray. Heavenly Father, any believer, especially a growing one, is going to be a target of the devil's guns. Because he is your enemy, it's precisely why he is our enemy. Because we as your children, the objects of your love become the objects of his ire, his hatred, his temptation, his attack. Thank you, Lord, that in one sense, it's a great sign that we're following you, following your ways, is because uh, the attacks that would come from Satan. And so tonight we want to thank you and bless you for the temptation, for the trials, and for all of those attacks, because you don't allow them to come our way without them strengthening us. You monitor the heat in the oven so that we're not burnt to a crisp, but we come out just right. Thank you for that kind of love, that kind of power that operates in our lives. We're encouraged by that tonight, Lord, and we're encouraged whenever we face any kind of temptation or trial or heartache or attack to pray first, to persist second, to continue to pray third, and then to stand guard and watch, and be active. We pray, Lord, that those things would mark us individually, but especially tonight as a body of believers. That we would watch each other's backs. That if things are said that aren't edifying, that could undermine what you want to do, that we wouldn't tolerate it. Because we love you and we love the reputation of Christ. Then finally, Lord, we all pray that If any have come to this service tonight or are watching by the Internet who have not yet surrendered their lives to Christ, that tonight would be the night. Maybe there's been an acknowledgement of God in that life up to this point, 
an acknowledgement that you exist, and an acknowledgement that there is a Jesus Christ who died for the sins of the world, but there has not yet been a surrender of the individual's life and heart to your control. We pray, Father, that that would occur here and now. And as our heads are bowed, as we're thinking about our own lives, the most everyone here has probably already made that commitment. We always find there's one or two or ten, perhaps, who haven't really done that or made a decision at one time a long time ago, but they've walked away. They're not following like they should, and they know it, and it's a desire that they have to return. If that's true of any of you, as, as we're praying right now, I want you in this atmosphere of, of love, these brothers and sisters who love you and love God, I want you to slip your hand up in the air. You're saying, Skip, pray for me. I'm going to give my life to Jesus tonight. Or I'm going to come back after straying for a long time and I want to rededicate my life. You just slip your hand up so I can see it. Before we close, if God is speaking to your heart, do it now. Say yes to him. Don't put it off any longer. Anyone at all? give it just a moment more. God bless you. Yes, sir. Right on. Right on. Who else? Anybody else? Raise that hand up. Father, we bless you tonight for this young man who's made this decision strengthen him. I pray that you turn this life completely around. Fill him with a confidence he's never known, with a hope he's never experienced, with a peace that has been foreign up to this point and so utterly changed that everything becomes brand new. Thank you for the way you love and the way you change and the way you reach out. In Jesus' name, amen.